0: Let me take you by the hand and lead you through the streets of London Show you something to make
1: you change your mind Ralph McTell is still walking those streets of London over fifty years after he wrote his signature song He'll be in New Zealand playing two shows in March We found Ralph near Melbourne and spoke to him about his long and illustrious career I just was looking through my record collection and found that I had a a live album of yours that was recorded. In- That's
0: Ralph having Sydney, yeah. <laughs> what, what do you remember about up? that?
1: Pardon? What do you remember about that recording or that show? Well,
0: it was absolutely amazing because uh, my first gig in Australia uh, was at the Sydney Opera House, right. and uh, you know, um, I, it just so happened that I'd had my song "Streets of London" had had made the charts and they took me on and, and um, I got a good joke. That it's been downhill ever since, but that's not true. <laughs> it's just been different, you know, but starting off at the opera house is a kind of, it's a, it's a tough act to follow. Right. Right. So you have been doing some gigs already over there in Australia this time. Yes. I've, um, I, I think we're about, uh, six or eight in so far, right? You know, and um, we've been we have a big one in Melbourne coming up, and um, I'm afraid I can't remember my exact itinerary, but I know. Oh, don't worry about it. Thirteenth <laughs> and fourteenth, we're in New Zealand, which right. would be great.
1: So at this stage. Well, first of all, I, I realized um, so I think you're in your late 70s, if I'm not mistaken, not to br- bring up your age too much, but I, I, it seems to be a, a, a bumper year or a time for vintage folk singers. Uh, Joni Mitchell just got her Grammy thing. I talked to Sylvia Tyson who's, I think, in her early 80s and, and yeah. it just seems like something's going on. Do you feel like uh, that? Uh, well, it, I, think,
0: it, I think the music is, sadly, the people that made this music are starting to slip away. I had a great good fortune. Of working with Tom Paxson just two or three weeks ago. Right. Um, he came to, uh, I was just playing in Dublin for the traditional music festival. And I took a flyer. I said, Do you think, would you be interested in, interested in coming over to Dublin and maybe something in England? And he said, Sure. And he's 86. Oh my God. 86. Which is phenomenal, and he was wonderful company. And you know, he's still sparkly. Got uh, got the wit. His wits are about him. And I mean, I also think that you know, people are beginning to realise that when this generation does hop the twig, as we say in England, that that's it. It's gone. You know, <laughs> yeah. so. I, I think sooner or later, I, coin, I coined the phrase sooner or later, these positions become available and we've got, we must have something to offer. It was a very exciting time. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, we were, we witnessed it and took part in it, you
1: know? I mean, let's see, Bob Dylan's a sprightly, what, 81 or something like that? Yeah, yeah.
0: absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> He's not stopping.
1: That's right. <laughs> so uh, did you guys, so well, first of all, Something must have been in the water something going on back in the 1950s. And of course, we know there was a lot of music happening around there. There is rock and roll kind of and rhythm and blues and doo-wop and all that stuff. What led you to down the, the folky path that you
0: chose? Well, I think um, I think most English guys or British guys would say it, it would have to begin with Lonnie Donegan, who was... Yeah, a, that's exactly right. <laughs> you know, a, he was a banjo player in a trad band, but he had a natural feeling for American music. And in particular, the the kind of folky music rather than the country music, I think. And... Songs with a bit of a message and through that, I mean, that's when I first heard the sound of a rhythm acoustic guitar and I thought it was really good and I had a skiffle group myself as about, when I was about 11. But <laughs> I didn't really take it up properly until I heard the real versions of Woody Guthrie and Lead Belly right. and... Uh, I was hooked because here was simple kind of chordal music that I could handle with lyrics that said something, you know, about our social concerns for the world and, and in my case, for, you know, left-wing politics and the union and, uh, you know, dignity for the working man and all that. And these songs had all that. But then, because Woody was a very eclectic in whoever he played with. I got to hear Sonny Terry's gorgeous harmonica playing and then Blind Boy Fuller, and then who he also played with. And then I started to be fascinated by the pianistic style of ragtime and blues guitar. Blues itself is a limiting subject subject matter, but the guitar sort of side of it is forever. But Very few people in my generation were bothering to learn about the pianistic style of these great ragtime blues players like Blind Blake, Reverend Davis, Blind Boy Fuller, Mississippi John Hurt, all those guys. And they fascinated me. And although I would say they taught me to play the guitar, I don't try to copy their subject matter. I think there's more to, to write about than, than than preoccupied those guys. Right. Right. And
1: so when was it that you decided that A, you could write a song and B, you had something to say?
0: Well, first of all, Bob Dylan freed us all from the inhibitions, you know, because I think some of us, and I would include myself, would would be able to say they could play the guitar better than Bob, but they couldn't sing like him and they, they couldn't write like him. But... There was an age of—I would say—it was an age of awareness outside of just pop. It was an awareness of the political situation, the Vietnam War, blah blah blah. And we had a—we suddenly had a a spokesman. I know he hates that to be talked (laughs) about as a spokesman. He loathes it. But Uh, whether he quits it or not, those of us who could play a little bit thought, well, maybe I can write a song, you know, maybe. And then. You know, I didn't have to search too long before I found something to write about, which was awful and I left that one alone. And if I was trying to write about what you know and what you've experienced and if it carries some sort of secondary meaning that talks about, you know, a common humanity or something that seems to fit into this new awareness, then bingo. Right. And that's when I uh, actually I was in Paris um, as a buskin with a a friend of mine when I met a, a young American guitar player who who was very um, influential on me because he'd had lessons from Reverend Gary Davis and one or two others and and I was noodling around on the guitar and he said, "Hey man, that's really pretty tune. You should write some words to that." You know, right? And I thought, well, "Yeah, maybe I maybe I can." And uh, and I started around 1960. Um, four or five to start to write. Mm. Yep, and of
1: course everybody in those streets of London, having written a mm. song like that, which is basically you know, it's almost like a traditional tune. Everybody, it's just in the air. now. Mm. how does that? How does that affect the songwriter in you? Do you have to kind of aspire to it all the time? Is it? Is it? Well, uh, what a good!
0: It's a very good question, Marty. The thing is, yes, it, <laughs> something like that is a double-edged sword. I was twenty. 20- two probably when the germ of that idea came about and the song right. was finished by the time I was 23 and then I added another verse to it because I gave it to a a professional singer yeah. because I wasn't a professional right. that time and he said to me he said well people love this song you ought to fit. and I just felt that it needed an extra verse so I wrote the last verse and you know, first of all, the reaction to it, it didn't percolate through to me that, that people were singing it and covering it and everything because we didn't have the means to to know, that you know, what is yeah. it, social You couldn't media look it up on right. YouTube. It just, <laughs> it just went out there, you know. Yeah. It just found a home elsewhere. But then you do go through this thing. You think, will I ever escape from it? And then you think you get to be 79, which I am now, and I think, well, I, why would I worry about escaping from it? It's a song that, that the world knows now, and I'm... Yeah. I'm, you know, you do think it's stopping your creativity. It really, it really hasn't. You just try to get better at writing songs, and you set your own criteria for that. And I think I have written better songs. I haven't written better popular songs than that, and that's the way it's going to be. Right. Your most recent
1: album was what? Hill of Beans that came out in 2019. Yeah. So, I mean, you have a huge catalog of tunes to choose from, including things that you probably want to play more than other people want to hear. When you're putting your set list together for, say, this tour coming up, and you're in Australia now and in New Zealand, what what crosses your mind? What What do you take into account when when you have to think? Well,
0: about it? I, I'm I'm Always assume that people only know the one song. So <laughs> yeah. I've, got, I've, got to, I've got to win the most. It's actually a false belief of mine because that people come out and that say that on this tour alone, people have been saying, "I've been following your music for fifty years, and I didn't ever think we'd ever meet up." Well, we have met up, and that is very gratifying because yeah. without major chart success and the media, you don't know that your songs are finding a home, as it were. Right. But so I would start off with a song which. I think would be quite clever on the guitar and have a simple message. And then I will start to talk about how everything I've ever written has related to my own life experience or someone that I know. And uh, they their truths, if you like. Um, and then I might talk about the influences, play a little bit of ragtimey stuff or stuff. That's, and I balance the set, excuse me, look like without, um, I don't have too many songs in the same key. I try to vary the tempos and by the time the the first half is ended, which is usually about 45 minutes, they'll know something about me. So when I go back, I'm hoping, you know, for the second half, they're in that zone and and I can play perhaps a few more challenging things or songs that I hope they might say, what was that third song you did? And, you know, that sort of thing. So... You are sort of still promoting yourself. I I, I think it's a privilege to play to an audience, and I don't ever just get out and express my art, as it were. I do try (laughs) to entertain. Yep.
1: Well, I mean, you're in Australia at the same time that Taylor Swift is over there. She just played to 97,000
0: people, right? (laughs) Yeah, she's nicked a few of mine, I should say. (laughs) I mean, I think it's a phenomenon. I don't know much about her work, but you just have to take your hat off to uh, a, a young woman that is not only talented, but has taken the industry uh, and turn it upside down and gone her own way you know i mean it's just fantastic fair play to her yep yep did you watch the grammys at all no no nope. I, I kind of like being outside the music business to be honest with you i like being under the radar and and uh i i mean every now and then my ear gets pulled towards some some new music but I'm quite happy with loving the old stuff, to be honest with you. I still marvel at Django Reinhardt, for example. Right, right, there you I go. At Oscar Peterson, Miles Davis. I've mean, there's people that give me real a real buzz. And then I'm I'm sort of sort of becoming tuned into classical music and the broader themes of love and loss that are just through music and stuff like there's all sorts of things that draw my ear. I'm not really much interested in the industry, to be truthful, because I've never really been in it. I had the, a blip in my graph of music right. back in the day, and I'm still working, so I'm happy. Well, I guess that explains, I think,
1: Joni Mitchell, you know, she made her first appearance there at, at age 80 now. But, I mean, her singing both sides now at age 80 was very different experience than hearing it when she was 20-something. And yeah. so does that happen to you? Do, you? do your songs take on different... It's-
0: it's a very good question again, Martin. You know, <laughs> I was talking to a singer called um, Archie Fisher, who's older than me now. And he said, sometimes, he said, I'm singing one of my old songs. And this is a this is a Scotsman, you might not have heard it. He's a great writer. Um, and he said, I suddenly find myself welling up. And I said, I know what you mean. Mm. There was a kind of purity of intent, if I can call it that where you really believed that writing good words and good music could help to change things. What it did was resonate with others. That's why he's still working and possibly that's why I'm still working. It's changed very little. You only have to look at the world to see that. But suddenly words that you you wrote as a young man full of, you know, brio and fire, and even if it was suppressed a little bit in terms of performance, it can move you, and mm-hmm. and that's that's a good thing. And I've listened to, when you listen to both sides now. What a mature song that was for a young woman to have written, and why? And it's even gained more gravitas when she's an older lady, you know. Yep. And she and she's brilliant anyway. Isn't she I love her. So I <laughs> All right. Well, I think.
1: I, I want to end it there because it doesn't get any better than hearing you talk like that.
0: <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. Well, thanks, that's Martin. It's thing. been a pleasure talking yeah. with you. It's nice yeah, to I'm have you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing
1: you when you get here. You're playing at the Tuning Fork here in Auckland. It's just I was just there. yesterday, So it's yeah. a, it'll be a beautiful Well, movie. I look out for you, mate. You know, that's really kind of you. And thank you for the interview.